Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Today I'm going to be joined by a very special guest, and it's the Honourable Josh Frydenberg, the Federal Member for Kooyong in Melbourne and the Australian Treasurer since August 2018. I'm going to talk to Josh about his background, like what about what's the deal about his parents, family, how he grew up, what's the deal with his wife and children, because we need to know about this guy. We're about to vote for him maybe to be the next Treasurer of this nation again. So it's really important to get behind the scenes and find out what drives him. And I want to know why he's motivated to look after the biggest budget in this country. Also, I want to chat about business, specifically the small businesses that drive this country, and to find out what he thinks are the key policies that are going to help business grow and stay strong well into our future. So let's get into it. Well, I, my great pleasure to welcome Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer of our great nation, to The Mentor. Welcome, mate. Great to be with you, Mark, and uh, look forward to the discussion. So I'm, I'm not going to call you treasurer today, even though if it's in an official capacity, I would, and with the greatest respect. Um, but today, we just sort of got the sleeves rolled up, and we're going to have a mag. And I think, you know, all our listeners really want to know who's running the purse strings in this country, what, what makes him tick. And that's sort of where we want to go. Uh, you okay with that? Absolutely. Look forward to it. Perfect. What's your nickname? Josh. Um uh, Friday sometimes to my mate Friddles, uh, but uh, nothing is catchy as ScoMo. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and and well, I, I guess I want to know where'd you grow? Well, like, tell me about you when you when you were a kid. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Melbourne. Still live there with my family. Um, my parents uh, both were. Uh, my father was born in Australia. My mother was born in Hungary. Um, European family. Uh, my on my father's side, uh, his parents came from Poland in the 30s, sort of pre-war, came pretty much with nothing, uh, started small haberdashery businesses and uh, gave their kids a fresh start. On my mum's side, uh, her family had a bit of a darker past in the sense that they uh, experienced the Holocaust uh, and she uh, came uh, as a very young child uh, to Australia after that terrible event and again family came with nothing and Australia offered a fresh start and a wonderful life. Was this like probably in the late 30s or 40s? Well my my mum came after the war. After the war. Uh, and there was a period where uh, they lived briefly uh, in a displaced persons camp uh, because uh, for a Jewish family um, coming out of out of the war it was a pretty unsavoury situation and uh, and Australia uh, offered a, uh, a wonderful place to live and uh, freedom uh, away from that tyranny of Europe. Yeah, and uh, and I guess that's a pretty typical Australian story. To be to be honest, I'm not sort of taking away from you, but it is a because you know we it's have a great a, Australian a, story. It is a, totally, and we have a really blended nation here. Absolutely, and clearly, you know, to some extent, that's important to me. You know, and maybe to our listeners too. But what's important because our listeners, a lot of our listeners are. That come from migrant backgrounds because a lot of our listeners are small businesses and small businesses ordinarily aren't educated people or never had the opportunity to be educated. So they've had to go on a small business to make a quid just to survive, to make ends meet. Well, Mark, I think the diversity in Australia is our strength and immigration has helped give us that diversity and that strength. Uh, and the fact that so many Australians are either born overseas or have one or two parents born overseas uh, is is a really important feature 
of our society. It's it's you know I thought I was listening to something really interesting this morning, and it was a um, it was a lady in Vietnam um, talking about why North Korea should release the drama that they have in there, so that North Koreans can do experience what Vietnam and probably South Korea have experienced by being able to trade trade with the rest of the world. And this lady was speaking in sort of broken English and it was sort of being interpreted. But the bottom line, she said, all I wanted to do was start up a business in order to survive, not to become rich. <laughs> Small business owners don't become rich. As some do, but it's rare. It's more about survival well, and putting food on the table. Big businesses started as small businesses, always the case. Every time. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, like General Electric. I mean, everyone goes, oh, General Electric, the world's largest Pontus. company. But there's that small businesses exactly. in the 1850s, you know, like, uh, and I think people, we, we, we got to get over big business versus small business. There's an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Sometimes big businesses become zero, Kodak. Sometimes small businesses become big businesses, you know, uh, and that happens. Like Edison took GE to becoming GE what it is today, but he didn't do it. He started it off. Same as Qantas. We've got to stop, get over this business about, oh, well, they're a big business and we hate them and they're a, well, that's a small business we love them. We love the whole ecosystem. And what's important, I think, for our listeners, and that's what today's about is having a conversation, is that they've got to identify with you. They've got to sort of say, and, and the game is, like, does Josh Frydenberg understand what it's like to be in business? You know, so what would you say coming from your background that gives you empathy? Well, my grandparents uh, both, you know, ran small businesses. Um, my my father's parents had those small haberdashery uh, stores in regional Victoria, in Mortlake, in Camperdown and Colac. And I remember as a kid, uh, my grandmother, who's, you know, a migrant woman into Australia, she packed up the Kingswood. Uh, and she would go to one destination, sleep at the uh, the pub across the road from the store, and she would open up by herself while her husband went to one of the other stores. And the, the name of the business was BPF, stood for three family surnames, Bloom, Paken, and Frydenberg. And all three of them came from this same migrant background from Europe and came to Australia to get a fresh start. And they worked so hard, just as any... A small business person does today, and uh, that was able to to provide the the funding for my dad and his sister to to get a good education. My dad's now a surgeon, um, and, uh, and still been, alive, still alive, and still practicing. Actually, uh, he's saying, "Is if in doubt, cut it out." Um, but uh, <laughs> but he, uh, you know, and he he, be, he became a, a real leader in in his his field. Um, but then again, that's a a wonderful story of a family who came pretty much with nothing, worked in small business, worked in regional Victoria. Everyone did the heavy lifting, and then after that, their uh, their children and their grandchildren uh, prospered. And my grandparents on my father's side they lived in in Kew, uh, and they would have voted uh, for Sir Robert Menzies, and now their grandson holds his seat in oh, Parliament. Really? So my seat of Kuyong was Sir Robert Menzies' seat. And so it's life's come full circle, Mark. It's, it's quite an amazing thing. And like I said, my mum's family, uh, again, came with nothing. And, and uh, my mum tells a story about her dad uh, just um, punching holes in belts uh, in the back of their uh, small apartment in, in Bondi. And that's how he eked out a living, punching holes in belts and, and selling them and uh, and again, he was pretty bruised after the war. Uh, and, uh, you know, like a lot of that generation, um, they internalized their own experiences and, and, uh, and they never forgot, uh, what Australia offered them. And, and that's interesting. So you're, you're on your mother's side, her father's from Bondi and, uh, well, their fam- they lived in Bondi and, but they came from Hungary. They come from Hungary originally. And, uh, so, uh. And in, uh, in that, I mean, I worked in a Jewish law firm for many, many years, a well-known one in Sydney. And um, so I picked up a bit of uh, the Yiddish Hungarian? terms. Well, not <laughs> Hungarian. That, uh, David uh, was Polish. So, uh, um, but, but so we didn't have, we probably did have Hungary. We had a lot of South African guys there, but um, the, the, we had a lot of clients um, who have similar stories, but they were in the rag trade and they used to call them schmutter. 
That's right. And uh, I often wonder what it actually... The schmutter business. Yeah, what is that? Is it just means selling clothes? Just the rag trade. And and that's what your family was. That's a pretty Um, typical thing. Yeah, exactly. It's like Greg's going to fish and chip shops (laughs) and uh, this is what we did and and cafeterias. Italians at the cafes. Yeah, so uh, like, I mean, I guess, and that's a typical story and it's a very Australian story and I think that's important from my point of view anyway to know that. I mean, and you, you as a kid, someone told me that you were a, a keen tennis player, or is it something more than that? Well, like probably most kids uh, listening today, um, they dream of becoming professional sports people. But in my case, my ambitions, Mark, were far greater than my talents. Um, but I wanted to leave school uh, in about year 10, and my parents said, uh, hang on, Josh, you're not doing that. Uh, let's do a deal. And I said, okay, if I finish year 12... Will you let me go and chase my dream and become a tennis player? You wanted to do that's your that's, deal. That's yeah, well, <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, deal or no deal, as they say. Um, but I said deal, and that's something I'm going to do. So I put my head down and and studied hard. And one of my favourite sayings through my year twelve was, and I had this plastered on my door, I had a little sign on my door, and it said, "The pain of discipline is far easier than the pain of regret." And what it said to me is if I put my head down and work hard through year 12, I won't have any regrets. And that's what I did. And so I got through year 12 and I got a spot at university into law. And then I deferred it and took a year off. And I traveled the world and had a wonderful experience. As a tennis player? I'm trying to make my way on on the tennis circuit, uh, including uh, spending time in Queensland playing uh, satellite tournaments and going up to Ipswich and Bundaberg and Gladstone and Brisbane and all around and here in New South Wales as well. Um, and really had wonderful experiences because it's pretty tough on the satellite circuit uh, in tennis. There's a lot of good players. It's very competitive. You win some, you lose some. But you've got to treat those two imposters just the same. Mm. It doesn't matter if you win or lose. There are experiences from them and you just got to pick yourself up and that level of discipline and commitment, I think, helped me later in life in, in, in other things that I went on to do, including in politics. Uh, but I got it out of my system. And I had an opportunity to represent Australia a couple of times in tennis at the World University Games level, got to play against people like Pat Rafter and Mark Philippoussis and developed some good friendships. So How'd you I go? Really good hey, no, come on. How'd you go? Well, uh, I can... Don't be modest. Well, well, yeah, I think I have to be modest um, because when it comes to Mark Philippoussis, I beat him, but it was in doubles. Right. And my partner was a guy called Josh Eagle who went on to be, you know, one of the best doubles players in the world. So I had a pretty, pretty good handy uh, backhand... But you didn't let him down. partner. Um, and, on, and Pat Rafter, we, we played up in Queensland and he took the honours. Uh, it, was, it was a close run thing. Uh, we were practising at... Um, a man called Ashley Cooper's uh, Tennis Academy. Ashley Cooper was a great Australian player. But I've also tried to give back, Mark, in, into tennis. I've been on the board for many years of a, uh, a a charity called the Kids Tennis Foundation, and I started off at university teaching tennis to kids with Down syndrome. Oh, wow. Uh, which was, you know, really rewarding. Totally. They're they the best kids. They might, have, they, they might have only hit one in 50 balls, right? Yeah, yeah. But they love being out there. And so that was a real buzz They're for self-fectionate. Yeah, and I, and I coach with a, a wonderful um, uh, a senior gentleman called uh, Bob Crump. And so we, we coach these kids and I loved it. And then I was invited onto the board and the board uh, is chaired by Paul McNamee. And it provides tennis coaching to disadvantaged kids throughout Australia in regional communities, Aboriginal communities, uh, in the uh, in the public school system as well, uh, uh, in every state pretty much. And so that's been very rewarding. Can I as ask well. you why do you think sport is important, whether it's team sport or individual sport? In your case, it is an individual sport, but you're part of a tennis team, I guess, too. Why it's important for young people? Well, the first thing is. Um, that it it helps engender a healthy lifestyle. And a healthy lifestyle creates a clear mind, uh, reduces stress, uh, and it gives you something outside your normal um, daily routine. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second is, is about discipline. Uh, when you're part of a, a team, even if it's a social team, you might practice once a week or twice a week, um, and, uh, you know, you learn to prepare for games, for matches, 
uh, and I think that level of discipline is really good. I think then there's the social aspect, and I found this even in an individual sport like tennis. You, you, you're meeting people all the time, people from all walks of life, uh, you know, people who went to different schools, uh, people who never went to school, uh, people uh, who, uh, who come from different states uh, and different backgrounds, and I think that was a really uh, fun aspect of it. And then finally, it's, you know, sport teaches you to pick yourself up and brush yourself off. When you lose. Defeat. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a life lesson that can never be replaced. Um, because another one of my favorite sayings, Mark, is um, smooth seas never made for skilled sailors. Meaning if it's always okay, you're never really going to know um, how to get through the tough times. And you've got to have some of those defeats. I've had plenty of them. Uh, but it's how you pick yourself up and, and go again. Learning how to lose is pretty important, isn't it, Josh? It's taking the learnings or the lessons out of defeat and then turning them into your favour next time round, which I think is absolutely critical. How important to you? Well, I guess also learning how to win is important too because yeah. you don't want to turn into an arrogant bugger. You know, like uh, it's really important. Uh, you know, how, how do I win? How to learning how to win, how to, learning how to lose – Two of the great lessons that sport give us. I mean, some kids are fortunate enough to get out of their academic environments because they may be really smart or something like that. But you've got you've got to be able to experience both, and sport does that because there's always someone better than you, Absolutely. and there's always someone worse than you. Absolutely. And uh, you're not going to win everyone. You're not going to lose everyone. So uh, unless you know you end up being the world champion, but even world champions eventually lose, eventually, Absolutely. and they have to learn how to lose. Can I ask you? Your parents are still alive, both of them, yep. and. Uh, were they like mentors or inspiration to you? They were in the sense that they were great role models. They never pushed me, Mark. Uh, they never uh, pushed me into tennis. My dad was a social player. Uh, but when I wanted to become a tennis player, he would ride his bike while I ran along the footpath at 5.30 in the morning. And, you know, he'd sort of like, you know, train me along in that respect or he'd drive me to, to the tournaments. Um, so they were all, I knew they were always there for me, but they never pushed me. It sort of came from inside in terms of politics. They're not very political people, never members of political parties, never active in terms of holding public office. Uh, they were professionals, family people, community minded, and they have put back into their own communities in many ways through charities and the education sector uh, and the like. So I looked up to my parents and obviously still do, uh, primarily because they love their children and their children knew it. Me and my sister, we know our parents love us. And I think that is the best thing you can ever get from your parents. And if I can be half as good as that to my kids who are young, um, then I would have been a success. Well, that's a pretty important thing, I think. You just said it, and I also experienced the same thing, um, that I had a stable, loving parent and family. And um, and I think that if you can, at a minimum, if you can look back on that, you've done brilliantly. But equally, what's really important when it comes to you know, us as voters, um, I don't know whether we don't, we don't really want to see someone in parliament who's got a chip on their shoulder because they had a shitty upbringing and they're out there to prove something. Um I think it's really important, especially if you're the treasurer, to have a balance. We need people with a, with a good balance. I mean, we've spoken to Scott Morrison here in the podcast, and he has a totally different background, but similar sort of background because his parents were very stable and uh, loving parents, and you come from a good family. Now, not everybody in the world enjoys that, and I get it, and not, not everyone is as lucky as you or I and, and or the Prime Minister and many others, but not many, not everybody. But I think we all... All of us would like to see the people holding the reins in our country to have come from those environments because if you grow up with a chip on your shoulder, I get worried about those sort of people can making decisions which are unbalanced, not properly balanced. And it's great to hear that your parents are still alive and that you really look up to them and uh, you're still close to them and your sister. Absolutely. And my sister's a medical professional dealing with kids. My mother's a psychologist. So maybe there was, uh, you know, she was checking on me when I didn't really know it, but... Uh, uh, you know, those free consultations that uh, that came in the form of parental advice. Um, but 
they still love work uh, and they still and they still go about their duties contributing to their community, which is something to be admired. So you you you're a boy who grew up in Melbourne. You played you, you loved your tennis. You played tennis. You had your, your run at it. Love my footy too. But oh, I was going to ask you, like you know, what's the deal? Because you're Melbourne. Melbourne sports mad. You know, I spoke in front of two thousand people on Melbourne on Monday night, and like they are the best spectators in the world. Melbourne people. Um, it doesn't matter what it is that they'll turn up to anything, and they're bloody great. They were fantastic. Um, who do you follow, mate? Well, I'm a Carlton supporter. That's a problem. Um, that's a pro- <laughs> Sorry, yeah. but it's a problem. I'm a Collingwood supporter, so that's a problem, okay? I mean, you've got too many teeth for a Collingwood supporter. <laughs> but, uh, and I just duck well, and weave good. Well, Mark, you know, you know, as a Carlton supporter, I, when I was growing up, my dad told me that, Josh, there are four teams in the AFL that began with the letter F, Fitzroy, Footscray, Fremantle, and F in Collingwood. <laughs> but in terms of Carlton, what we say about Carlton is we're going through a bad patch is where 15 years into our five-year redevelopment plan at Carlton. <laughs> it feels a bit like that because when I grew up, I went and saw premierships, you know, uh, and we, uh, 79, 81, 82, um, we had good good years there and, and the names, uh, and it, gee, they were they were ethnic names, the Marcazanis, the Bordelottos, the Bazustos, you know, Barassi as a Carlton. Um, these Ron are, these are Silva, yeah. Silvani, great yeah, yeah. captain, Carl. Um, so we've, we've had, you know, terrific, uh, players and I grew up watching those guys, uh, and, uh, I'm not Barassi, of course, he was a bit older, but, um, everyone knows the great feats of Ronald Dale Barassi, but Carlton, my dad grew up in Carlton and he went to school, uh, in the area and the football club used to come into the primary school and give out the tickets to the kids to go and watch the game for it. And after, at halftime, every match, that doesn't happen anymore, they used to open up the gates. So my dad, if he didn't get a free ticket, he would wait till halftime and he'd go into the game. So he <laughs> loved Colin and he took my sister and I and, you know, we used to go and watch the game and get the hot donuts afterwards with the jam in the middle and we just loved it. And I hope to give my kids that experience because I think spectator sport and and the sort of traditions of of football uh, runs through the the veins of not just every Victorian, but I think it's very much now a, a national sport, national code, with really good support through the country. It's it's, it's well Australians we're famous for that sense of um, fairness and and sport and. You know, we just and we love and our equality. Teamwork. And equality. You know, equality on the field, Mark. It didn't matter where you came from, mm. uh, but when you once you got on the field, you're all equal. Yeah, and, that, and that's a big deal, and that's why we are also also mad for sport. And by the way, again, I like I remember, you know, I'm not here to have a crack at Bob Carr, but when I was sponsoring New South Wales in the state of Origin, and uh, I, Wizard was a sponsor on the front of the jerseys, and we actually sponsored Collingwood for a while, and I did the uh, I, I did the um, the um, Preseason cup down in uh, Melbourne for a while, and uh, I remember one time I we went up. That, yeah. I remember one time went up to uh, Queensland, and I was sitting there with uh, Peter Beatty, was the premier at the time. Peter was sitting on my left hand side, and uh, and uh, Bob came up to support New South Wales. He was on my right hand side. It was two Labor guys, and um, and uh, Peter was like, he is the maddest supporter of rugby league ever, right? He's up there swearing at the referee, going berserk, and Bob was sitting sitting there, didn't have much to say, and. Um, Bob did not know the difference between um, rugby league and rugby union, and um, and he, like and it was and I thought to myself, and and he said something really silly in in front of the media, and the media picked up and they ran with it really hard, because there was an expectation that if you're representing the state, and that, at that time he was a premier of New South Wales, but if you're representing all of the New South Wales people, or in your case you're representing Australia, you got to at least know something about footy. And if you don't, there's a bloody big problem. And uh, and I don't think Bob probably didn't didn't offend Bob that he got uh, whacked around by the media because he just didn't understand, right? He just went over the top of his head. But actually, to me, it's a big deal. I would have been horrified 
if I had stuffed up something like that, the difference between, um, you know, rugby union and rugby leagues, particularly when you're up there watching a rugby league game. But I, I have to give it to Beattie. I mean, he's a Labor guy. But on that flip side, Beattie is the maddest rugby league supporter of all time. And by the way, so one-eyed Queensland is ridiculous. And by, somehow has managed to become the, the chairman of the NRL commission. Now, I don't know how that works, but Queensland seems to me to be getting a much better deal in the NRL at the moment too. So that could be something to do with who the chairman is. But I guess that's politics. So, and, I, and by the way, credit to ScoMo because he loves his, oh, his sharks. He oh. loves his Cronulla sharks. But he, he comes down and watches the AFL and he's got behind it, which is good. Who's and, he follow? Well, I, don't, I think he's very careful not to, right. not to choose a team, you know. Well, I, I, I've been to that. Because you've got to be authentic, right? You've got to yeah, be authentic. If it's not your shtick, you come and enjoy it. Totally. But, you know, don't. You know, Paul Keating famously jumped on the Collingwood bandwagon probably because it was the uh, the most popular club. And you know, who's he, to say Bill Shorten do it didn't do it for the same reasons? Is he is he a Collingwood supporter? Yeah. Well, I, I guess well, I got to check with Eddie to make sure. I think it's he was real there him first. <laughs> well, I know Scott. I know the Prime Minister loves the Sharks. We've been out to game together, and uh, where he where we Roosters, I'm a Roos supporter, and we'll we'll play in the Sharks. But again, he's a he's pretty full on. Like, uh, and he, Albo loves his rugby too. He's I mean, a mad South supporter. Yeah, it, it, a mad that, bunny. It doesn't supporter. matter what side of politics you represent. You can love your sport, and good on you for doing so. So I, 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 I we've got to go to a break, but I don't want to go there past past talking to you about um, you're married and you're married to Amy, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, what what's the family situation? What do you got now? Kids. Got a couple of kids. Yep. And uh, and you know, uh, how old are they? We're, we're four and two. Wow. And we're very lucky, and obviously. Uh, she uh, puts up with me. I'm doing this uh, doing this job, so I'm forever grateful for that. Uh, but uh, you know, like like many people or most people, uh, we marry above our station. I'm very lucky uh, <laughs> to, to to be married to to a woman who's um, smarter than me and uh, and and certainly. Uh, a very very good person. Well, it's important to have a supportive wife, and, and it's not as lovely to hear you say that about her. And did you did you go back to university by the way? You, go back? She's a good athlete by the way too. Loves that it, that tri- helps. Does triathlons? Wow! And uh, and has done a marathon. She's putting you on show then, eh? She's sort of saying, well, bringing yeah, it up to you. Yeah. Well, now I eat for a living, mate. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm eating for a living. She's doing exercise. And and, and did you go back to uni after that, or did you just uh, give well, it away? So I went through uh, had my year off playing tennis. Then I went. To Monash, yep, uh, and had a great time there. Monash University, Monash University. You know, got, got didn't get involved with a political party, but then, but then started to sort of uh, get interested in campus politics. In a sense, I became president of the Law Student Society. Um, played my tennis, um, did my law and economics, and then after that, uh, I um, went and studied in the United Kingdom. I got uh, a scholarship to go to Oxford, and then I went there, and and you know what? It was a great couple of years of my life. Came back to Australia, went to a law firm, worked, uh, got admitted as a barrister and solicitor to the Supreme Court of Victoria, um, subsequently did some further study and spent some time working in Canberra and then worked in an investment bank uh, for a number of years, and Eventually got elected to Parliament. You went to Deutsche, worked to Deutsche Bank? Correct. Did you know Joe's wife? Uh, I did, uh, but she Show worked in a completely, about. she worked, Melissa? Uh, Melissa, she worked in a completely uh, different section. She was working in terms of exchange rates. Yeah, she was up here in Sydney yeah. too. Yeah. Were I you was, in Sydney or Melbourne? I was in the global banking. Yeah. I spent time in Sydney, but based in Melbourne. Yeah. Well, Joe, man, talking about, um, you know, batting above your weight, Joe fell on his feet there, let me tell you. <laughs> She's great, Melissa. She's fantastic. Very high-achieving uh, intelligence. Totally. Person. And a great family too. And, and as, of course, an ex-treasurer. Um, and can I ask you now, I mean, where where are you at? I mean, as in your personal life? And I mean, I because, mean, I mean, you know, treasure's a big deal. Like, yeah, that's... To me, I mean, I said to you earlier when you walk in, Prime Minister is really important. I mean, the greatest respect is it's, it's the top of the tree. But, you know, as a business person, I want to know who's, who's got these hands on the till. And uh, to me, the treasurer is the most important person. And I've got to tell everybody who's listening to this, um, the treasurer, Josh just came in here and, like, he has one person with him. <laughs> he didn't have an entourage. He didn't have all his heavy security deal going on. He probably took a taxi. I don't know. Just walked in the front door like everybody else. Um, 
Took an Uber last night. Took an Uber, did you? It's just, but it's pretty cool. I sort of thought he's going to have, you know, sharpshooters and all sorts of secret service dudes running around him, but no, he just walked in, wanted in the joint. As if he owned the place too, by the way, but he, he probably does. You know, he probably does own the place. And the government probably does somewhere. Like that. No, but it was great. It was great to see. So, But where do you see yourself now? I mean, like you've just taken over the portfolio. It's a heavy, heavy portfolio. You've only, what, been nine months, eight months? Yeah. Um, you've got to get your head around it. You've got a budget coming up. Yep. Um, and this is going to be your first budget, and it's a really important one because you've got an election going to come off the back of it. Yeah. So how do you feel? Like, is it nerve wracking or? Look, I'm I'm loving the the role. Uh, it's a real privilege to work with the Treasury Department, and and obviously having a Prime Minister who was the Treasurer for that a number helps. of years. Uh, very, it's 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 really good. And being his deputy, we're working um, side by side in every major decision, which is fantastic. Um, I was the assistant treasurer uh, under Tony Abbott mm -hmm. uh, when he was prime minister, so I had that experience and having worked in um, in finance before. It's been uh, a busy time, I have to say, since I took it on. You had national accounts, uh, then we had um, the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook. We had an interim, and which, then a by the way, everybody, it's called the Maifio for, for those people. <laughs> who... <laughs> then we had a interim, and then a final report of the Royal Commission. Uh, into banking misconduct, which was a big deal. Uh, we had uh, the superannuation report by the Productivity Commission. So there's been a heap of stuff uh, that have that has kept me busy. And then, of course, throughout this process has been budget preparation. Does that mean you – well, I, I'm going to go to the break, but I'm, I want to talk to you about this because I think it's really important um, – you know, I, I guess I'd like, I want to know how you feel about this. It's like, it's like people work in businesses. My God, like this is a big deal. This is like a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job. I mean, we're talking about, we're not running a delicatessen or running a bank even. You're running a country where, the, you know, where you're collecting trillions of dollars and you're spending trillions of dollars and etc. Like, it's a big deal. There's, there's like, no room for complacency. There's no, totally. And, uh, and I'm just... Every day, I'm working hard at it, knowing how big the responsibility is, uh, but also what a great opportunity in a great country. So every week, I like to highlight or showcase one of our businesses that we have for sale, and I've got Matt here. He's our CEO at Mentor.Business. So, mate, Welcome. What are you highlighting this week, mate? Mark, a number of good businesses have come in this week. We've had uh, probably 25 odd new businesses come through in the last week. Wow. I've, I've highlighted one in particular that's uh, Central Coast based. Um, it's a commercial um, hotels laundry. So it, it's family run. Um, been going about nine years, multi-million dollar turnover, but still an affordable uh, business and probably something the banks would actually appreciate because yeah. it's got assets, got assets in the business. It's, it's also got, got clients, I guess. Oh, they deal with all the main hotels up there. So they right. don't do the mums and dads stuff. This is a, a real uh, commercial-style laundry. Yeah. That, uh, dealing with the um, the many hotels on the Central Coast and up towards uh, Newcastle. Well, that's an interesting one. And um, it's good basic stuff. Um, I'd imagine during recession periods, they're sort of recession-proof, these sorts of businesses, because, um, you know, hotels, et cetera, still need to get their stuff washed. Now, I like the sound of that one. That sort of thing would interest me if, you know, if I always had one of my kids and they want to look at, you know, me investing in a business with them. But that's the sort of thing I'd actually look at. So it's a Central Coast commercial laundry business. And uh, how long have they been in business for? Uh, over nine years now. Over nine, nine years. years. Okay. So if, if, if a buyer's out there and they want to come and have a look at this, they go to where? Mentor.business. Okay. And if you're a seller, you've got a business similar to this and you want us to sell it for you, Matt's right here. If you want Matt to look at it or his team to look at it, come to mentor.business and uh, maybe put up an inquiry. How do they contact you I mean, other than through uh, the website? Yeah, well, look, we've got the 1-800 numbers on the actual websites. Give us a call 24-7 on that as well. You can actually get through to our call center. Awesome. If you've got something for sale, you want to buy something, Matt and his team, they're dying to help you. Come to mentored.business. So you might have better talk to the treasurer. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Okay, we're back from the break. And it's interesting. This guy's a busy guy. Like, uh, we're here with Josh Frydenberg. He's the treasurer of the country. Um, and during the break, he was looking at his text, looking at his emails. I want to ask you about that. The intensity of your job today, relative to, say, whatever you've done in the past, going right back, 
Can you just reflect on that? How's the intensity? Like, it's because it, is it never never ceased? Does it never stop? I don't think it stops now because of the twenty four seven media cycle. So you can walk out of any interview and there'll be a story up online now uh, that needs to be reacted to. And I remember John Howard telling me that when he first went into politics, there was only two parts to the to the news cycle. There was the early morning papers and radio, and then there was the six o'clock news. And they were the bookends of the news cycle. Today, it's continuous. It's 24-7, plus we're much more global. So in the case of the Treasury portfolio, I'm dealing with inbound calls from Bloomberg or from uh, other um, international programs, CNN and others, who want you to, to speak on, on issues related to your portfolio um, to send messages around the world. And, and I think that's an exciting part of it, but it's also a more demanding aspect of it. So how do you balance yourself out? Do you actually, do you, do you exercise, do you train? What's the deal? How do you, yeah, how do you I, keep I like yourself to balanced? do some form of exercise every day. More recently I've been swimming. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, if I can get a chance for a run, then I'll, I'll do that. Um, Give your dad a call or get the bike out and sort of get chasing right. me. <laughs> well, I think, I think discipline is important. Mm. And that's where I really take my hat off, for example, to Tony Abbott and to Julie Bishop, because both of them were really rigorous with their, uh, with their with their fitness schedules, I think that's good. It was sort um, of their part of their playbook, though, too, wasn't it? Like they they knew they're going to they knew that that was part of their image, their personality. Well, I'm sure it worked both ways. Totally. Uh, but for them, you know, they love their exercise, and good on them for getting out there and doing it. So exercise is important. Um, time with family is important. Um, I don't get as much time to sit back and and read non work related stuff. Uh, you know, read a novel or a book, you, you just don't even, you don't have that sort of time anymore. Um, and my phone's always on. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like, you know, I can turn it on to silent, but it's always there. Yeah. And I find probably like nearly every one of your listeners, one of the first things you do when you get up is you just go straight to the phone. You see what messages are there. Um, you know, for my sins, I look at Twitter. I don't know why I do that, but you know, because it's a, it's a bit of a swamp. Um, but when you, when you look at the, uh, when you look at the, the comments there, everyone has a voice, which is a new feature mark of the media landscape. Mm. Everybody has a vo- voice through that small device that they hold in their hand. And how do you deal with it? When, what about when someone's, um, not being critical, but just unfairly critical, what, what, how do you feel about that? I mean, it's, what... it's water off a duck's back, um, to me, but if somebody in the media makes a criticism, which is unfounded, I always seek to respond in the same media cycle. I think that's really important. Uh, you know, and if you look at a sort of macro or meta level, think about Medischare, uh, how much damage that did to the government mm. at the last election, because it sort of was out there and it stayed out there and it set in. I think we're a lot better this time around. We saw, for example, during the Benelong by-election, when John Alexander beat Christina Keneally, that there were scares that Labor were running then, and we responded quickly. Uh, the public heard our response. They then knew the facts, and that helped us win the campaign. So, like, I guess, you, yeah, you got no. I mean, you can either respond, or sometimes you can be super cool and just sort of say, "Well, I'm just going to let that get water be water." Well, it depends where it's coming from and the nature of it. If it's coming from a substantive journalist. Who's got an audience. Uh, or, or, yes, or it's getting traction out there, then really you've got to respond before it actually sets in. So let's talk about there's an, an election coming up. I mean, I'm not going to talk about the budget because that's obviously something that's going to be under wraps, but it's, it's, but it's an important budget. But off the back I of that... I thought I was going to give you all the scoops here. Well, we can now. <laughs> we can do the scoop if you want. Um, uh, this, please. <laughs> but, but, uh, Just but, leave this document on the desk uh, and I'll that's walk a, oh, I've, I've, <laughs> The I've old Laurie Oak story, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, accidentally. So, but, but off the back of the election, off the back of the budget, I, I, there's going to be an election I can see coming, So, which everybody knows about this. So how are you guys feeling as to where you stand today? We had a few people leave some, retired from parliament, um... It's not an ideal time, I guess. Um, you're on the back foot because, you know, you guys are slightly behind on some of the polls and maybe a month ago you were a long way behind, relatively speaking. How are you guys feeling about this? Um, what do you think? What's your position, like, in relation to Australians voting for you at this next election? Well, I absolutely think we can win and we will. Uh, and that's because we've got a strong Prime Minister 
who has a strong economic plan and a strong national security plan. Uh, We've got the runs on the board in the last five and a half years, but the economy doesn't run on autopilot. It actually needs to be managed and managed well. Like every business. Like every business. Uh, And and we're getting on with that job. Um, I think people have really warmed to to Scott Morrison. Um, They've seen him very active. Uh, You know, a day doesn't go past when he's not traveling around the country, meeting with local communities, making announcements. Uh, And there's an authenticity about what he's doing, which I think resonates. Uh, he doesn't wear the Cooper, he puts on his cap, um, yep. you know, and, he, and he's out there. And he's got, a, I think, a strong way of communicating. Now, it's never ideal circumstances to come to the prime ministership and the leadership of our country as he did. Uh, but given that, and as you say, it was a rocky period at the end of last year. Uh, but once we got through the Christmas period, I think we turned the corner. I, for one, spent a lot of my break focusing on Labor's $200 billion of new taxes, breaking down what they were going to do in superannuation, discretionary trusts, income tax, the retirees tax, which is really obviously caught on, and the changes around negative gearing and capital gains tax, um, and sort of forensically exposing Labor's high tax agenda for what it is, a handbrake on jobs and growth in the economy. And uh, I think that is getting some traction out there. And then couple that with Labor's um, weakness on borders, which was exposed through the parliament and the prime minister being very upfront about uh, how this will be very detrimental to Australia's national interest, I think has given the Australian public a clear line of difference between Bill Shorten and his high tax, weaker border agenda and Scott Morrison uh, with his low tax, uh, strong jobs growth and strong national security. Do you think it's becoming presidential style? Like, I mean, is it? it, is it's, it... it's more presidential in that there's a greater focus on the leaders. Yeah. But our elections are won on the ground, and the ground game will differ between seats. The issues and the strategies um, and the announcements in regional Queensland are very different to what they are in suburban Melbourne or Sydney, or indeed what it's like uh, in Wentworth couldn't be more different to what it's like in Western Sydney. And I think that's where the party organisation and the local members make a real difference. And we have got incumbency, and that will count for something, uh, but we're not complacent. Uh, There's a long way to go. We have seen hubris on the part of... Uh, Bill Shorten, and you know, we saw the other day Chris Bowen say to a million plus uh, voters uh, who are going to be hit by Labor's retirees tax, "Well, if you don't like this policy, just don't vote for us." That showed a level of um, uh, that showed a lack of understanding and concern for people whose retirement plans and savings are going to be upended by this. Government. My dad's one of them. Hundred bucks a week makes a huge difference. My dad, absolutely. Uh, the average person affected by this will lose uh, $2,200 a year. Uh, and the average self-managed super fund is 200,000 of them, which will be affected, uh, will lose on average $12,000 a year. This is money that could go to buying their new fridge or money that helped pay the grandkids school fees, um, money that went for their one camping holiday a year, whatever the case may be. This is real money affecting real people. Well, and I, I guess I've got to ask you then because I don't, I mean, I don't know, really know Shorten. I've met Chris Bowen a couple of times, but I, I, I can't see that they're trying to, I mean, are they? You tell me. I mean, are they actually out there to hurt these people? I mean, why are they raising all these extra taxes? Is it just because they want to tax the rich and pass it on to the poor? I mean, what's the deal? Are they trying to build bigger governments? Why do they want to raise all these taxes? What's behind all this? Are they trying to even the world out or... What's well, it about? It's Philosophically. In the, it's in their DNA. Um, it's in their DNA to hike taxes uh, and and therefore to try to spend more. Uh, and that level of um, economic, uh, you know, st- that type of economic strategy doesn't work because ultimately what it means is uh, less 
jobs and less growth because it stifles investment um, and opportunity and puts a handbrake on aspiration as well. Um, and at the same time, the higher spending will run greater budget deficits and that will be intergenerational theft because it will leave money that needs to be paid back by future generations. We, on the other hand, have brought the rate of spending growth down, Mark, to half of what it was. You're talking about government spending. Government spending from what we inherited. Uh, And we've taken some really hard decisions in that respect. We've spent more money in areas that are really important, like defence industry, with a record spend there to try to develop jobs in Australia and and our own defence capability. Um, But we have reined in excessive or wasteful spending. And in doing so, uh, we're going to be able to deliver on April the 2nd, the first budget surplus in over a decade. And that's really important because that can pay back the debt that we inherited from the Labor Party. Let's not forget Howard and Costello, when they left office, there was money in the bank, all the debt had been paid off. Now we've got a situation where we have got government debt and we need to pay that back because every day we don't, we're paying interest on it. And that's, I think, so we're talking about philosophical differences here. So I I guess what I want to know, Josh, is, well, we're talking about philosophical differences here and there are major differences, I think, in this election. I don't think I've ever seen an election where the differences between the principles of the two parties, Liberal and Labor, are so pronounced. That's my, that's just my gut feeling. And I, and I guess what I see with, and then Australians will vote however they're going to vote. And I, but I guess what I see with um, Bill Shorten and Chris Bowen is they are very much representative of the big differences. They're not so close in terms of what Liberal have been doing over the years. So what is the philosophical position of the Liberals? I mean, what, what, how do you guys operate? Why do we vote for Liberal as opposed to Labor? In a philosophical sense, what do you stand for? Well, we stand for individual choice. If you want to send your kid to a private school, take our private um, health, then we'll support that. Uh, we stand for enterprise and the individual being able to fulfil um, their, uh, their talents um, and to support the small business. Uh, we support families. We think that they're the heart of the community and that's absolutely critical. But one sentence I think sums it up. We want to create equality of opportunity for people, whereas the Labor Party wants the equality of outcomes. They want everyone to have the same, whereas we want everyone to be the best that they can be. And so whether you're encouraging choice, whether you're encouraging individuals and their enterprise and small business, or whether you're valuing the family, that's what we believe in. Now, there are some people who can't fend for themselves. And the Liberal Party, from Menzies' day, firmly believes in the safety net. To give a hand up, not a handout. And we want to help those people uh, to get back on their feet. And I have to say, one of the proudest uh, aspects of our government's achievements over the last five and a bit years has been a record 1.2 million new jobs. And the fact that unemployment has come down to its lowest level in eight years The fact that female workforce participation is now at a record high, that the gender pay gap between men and women has now come down to a record low. Uh, And more than 100,000 young people got a job over the last financial year, which was the highest number in years. Uh, So that is our record, creating jobs, lowering taxes, encouraging small business, valuing the family, and the Labor Party will seek to take a monopoly on this term fairness, that they think if they tax the rich, then they can spend on the poor. It doesn't work like that. Higher taxes represent a wet blanket over the economy, and that means lower growth and less jobs, and that means less money to spend on health and education. So we are actually focused on growing the pie, not just distributing it. And as a result, we've been able to spend record amounts on health and education and infrastructure and roads and a whole series of other um, essential things that people uh, people need, expect and deserve 
I mean, the best example, Mark, is what we've done on listing of medicines on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. We've seen a few been released in the last 2000, couple of months. 2,000. 2,000 drugs that we have listed. Uh, and this is costing the taxpayer over $10 billion. But you can't do that if you haven't got a strong economy. Mm. Because the money, as you know, just doesn't come out of thin air. Totally. And if you put it on the credit card, then you're going to be paying it back uh, in by future generations. And we want to stop that intergenerational um, wealth transfer. So we, we're really, I think, uh, focused on our core fundamentals and beliefs, lower taxes, the family, the small business community, um, providing choice, and that all means that in terms of a fairer outcome, uh, it's on our side that we deliver that, not just talk about it. And ultimately, after once everyone agrees with that or, or sees that and they decide to vote for you, what they want to know is who's the best place party or organisation, to be frank with you, to manage this country. In other words, because you're going to come with a bloody great idea and you can have the thing well-funded and you can have capital and all that sort of stuff, is, which is sort of where the Australian economy is. But at the end of the day, you've got to execute after that. You've got to, it's like every business. You've got to execute. You've got to, manage the, you've got to manage the processes and get delivery. Why are you guys, do you think, a better place to manage the Australian economy going forward? Well, because we have the economic plan, uh, because of our track record to date, uh, because the things that we value are the things that are important to the future economic prospects of this country. Um, we're the ones who are going to deliver a budget surplus. Labor never delivered that. The last time they delivered a surplus was 1989, when many of your listeners were probably in diapers. Hmm. Um, we are the ones who have created over 1.2 million new jobs and seen unemployment fall. I mean, when we came to government, Mark, economic growth was 2.1%. Uh, Today it's 2.8%. Uh, when we came to government, Unemployment was five point seven percent, and by the way, two point eight percent of a much bigger uh, bottom line. So it's it's two percent eight percent of a much bigger number. The Unemployment when we came to government it was five point seven, and now it's down to five percent. We've maintained the AAA credit rating from the three leading credit rating Can agencies. Can you explain why that's important? I mean, because, because that's the cost of borrowing. So yep. if you have a AAA credit rating as a country, as a country, it means your banks can go out and your state governments as well, can go out and borrow money at lower rates. At the lowest possible rate. And those lower rates are passed on to you when you get your mortgage uh, or uh, in other aspects of, of your borrowing, for example, for your small business. So it does make a difference. But you only get that AAA credit rating if you have policies that deliver economic results. And how important is the surplus for the agencies that give us the AAA rating? So just for the people listening, we've got Standard Poor's and Fitch and Moody's. They do the, they do these rating things of countries. They rate countries. And I know, because I read this stuff, unfortunately, it's boring, I know, but I read this stuff. And they have been very heavy on us getting back to surplus. And what they would be worried about is if we go back into deficits. They want to see that we've turned the corner. And they have praised us along the way for the fiscal discipline that we have shown, for that spending growth reduction um, that I was talking about earlier, and for that low tax agenda. Um, if we get uh, a continuation of that strong economic performance, then we get to maintain that AAA credit rating. And I'm very confident we will. And certainly that's the, the word from the agencies that they are pleased with how Australia is tracking under this government. And like, like we'd all rejoice heavily if we get a surplus, but the most important thing from my point of view is it'd be a disaster if something happened and that surplus got reversed down the track, um, particularly under another party. Well, and you cannot rely on the Labor Party to deliver strong economic management. It's not their record in the past and it won't be their record into the future. I mean, just think about it. $200 billion of new taxes... That's not just extra revenue into the government. That means money out of the pocket of your listeners, which means they have less money to spend in the economy. If they have less money to spend in the economy, those retirees 
or those property investors or the people who are currently renting who are going to pay higher rents because of Labor's changes to capital gains tax and negative gearing, um, that means they'll spend less at the corner store, they'll be spending less at, in, in, uh, at the... Uh, uh, at the, uh, the another small business, um, and that means there'll be less jobs that we create and less economic activity that's created. Well, and I, I'm going to finish up. I've got one really important thing, and this is about house price because a lot of our listeners own pro- property. And um, two questions were asked of you this week. I saw it on an interview, um, and um, the the two questions came off the back of um, the Property Council of Australia um, doing research on the effects of negative gearing and the changes of the capital gains tax on housing. And the, the two questions put to you, and which like totally surprised me, and I, I was actually blown away, to be frank with you, that as the Property Council's research has shown, and I, I think they researched, they uh, polled 1,000 people. 500 um, existing investors and 500 potential. Right. And that's, that's, I mean, people say, well, that's not much of a poll. Look, in a quantitative analytical sense, that is actually a proper sample size yep. to get a 95% confidence level that the outcomes yep. that they're telling to you is correct. So anybody who says, oh, 1,000 people is not too many, that's actually the right sample size mathematically. Um, so let's just get past that argument. Um, but in any event, the Property Council's finding, as I understand it, is that rents are more likely to increase if negative gearing disappears and or capital gains tax is increased as yep. a result of Labor's policy. That shocked me. I got a shock by that. Well, let's be clear. Labor's planning to abolish negative gearing as we know it, and they're planning to increase capital gains tax by 50%. So we pay a higher capital gains tax in Australia than the US, than the UK, than New Zealand, than Canada, than other comparable jurisdictions. The net result, Mark, of that policy from the Labor Party is that anybody who owns their own home will see it worth less under Labor because there'll be less buyers in the market. And anybody who rents their own house will end up paying more. And that's because investors are prepared to charge lower rents because they will make an after-tax capital gain Mm. under the current rules. Which is how negative gearing works. Negative gearing works in that I'm happy to take a bit of a loss on the rent compared to the interest I'm paying to the bank because at some stage down the track, I'm proposing I'm going to sell the property, make a capital gain. And because the capital gains tax is discounted currently under your government, I haven't got as much tax to pay and I make a lot more money. So I I pick, I lose on one hand and pick up on the other hand. And and this is 1.3 million people. There's 1.3 million properties at least. Right. Minimum, assuming everyone has one property. And these people, two thirds of whom have taxable income under eighty thousand dollars. Yeah, you know, we've done this research too, Josh. And to These are frank, not wealthy people. We're not talking about rich people. We're talking about people who've got eighty grand's worth of income. And you know, the Labor Party, you know, tries to attack these people just as they attack the retirees, saying it was welfare for the wealthy. How insulting is that? But when it comes to negative gearing, over seventy percent of those people who currently negative gear have only one property. Yeah, and by the way, this information comes to you through the tax office. Tax office provides. Uh, this AT, all, uh, there's, a, there's ATO data which shows the breakdown. Uh, in the people in negative gear. And over 70% of these people have a taxable deduction of under $10,000. So these are not people who are, you know, with multiple properties necessarily or people with massive tax deductions. They're mums and dads who've put aside a little bit of money every month for a few years so that they can have an investment to provide a better life for their kids into the future. We shouldn't be whacking these people with extra taxes. Indeed, Wayne Swan, the Labor Party's treasurer, was asked and about... And president, ex-president. And now president. Now president. Right. I was asked about this policy when he was treasurer, and he said in his own words, it would be economically disastrous to change negative gearing. And we've seen the housing market, and Mark, you know this market very well. We've seen this market correct. Prices come down. And now Labor is proposing a policy which will drive prices further down and rents up. And it won't just affect the family, it will actually affect the small business because most small business people borrow against the family home to invest in their small business. Now, if their family home's worth less, the bank's going to be more reluctant to give them money uh, to, to expand their business and that could constrain capital lending. So I think these policies are very ill-considered. I think they're coming at exactly the wrong time. 
I think the Australian people are now alert to these $200 billion of taxes. And for us, and for 25 million Australians, this is going to be a clear line of difference. The coalition, under Scott Morrison, is a low-tax, strong jobs, high-growth party with the policies to deliver that. The Labor Party will do exactly opposite. Well, you heard it here, and that's probably laying it out as bad as, frankly, and to be honest, like, straightforward as you can possibly get. Josh Frydenberg, treasurer of our great nation, Australia. Good luck, and thanks for coming in. Mark, great to be with you. Thanks, mate. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.